Well, as we often talk about the Christian life, we talk about it a lot of times like it's a journey, right? A lot of us think of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. We talk about that a lot in this church, and for good reason, because it's a really helpful allegory, reminds us that we are on a path, and at the end of that path are the gates of heaven, with Jesus standing there and he's waiting for us. But in the meantime, there is this path that we have to trek through, right? And that means that, that this side of heaven, we will face many, many barriers, enemies, problems that we will inevitably encounter along the way. And so are, are some of you feeling the weight of these heavy things this morning in some way? Living the Christian life is so hard. And, and just living in this world is so hard. Either you feel this deeply right now, you're looking back at this last week and see it, maybe the last couple days. Uh, I know some of you are in these seasons right now, in seasons of great sorrow, loss, conflict, fighting sin. Or maybe, maybe you aren't there right now, but you recognize these seasons and you know they come far too often. You're bracing for the next one. And if you've ever been on an actual journey or a hike or something and your way becomes weary, maybe because there's fog or you have an injury of some sort or your, your head's just low, you've been staring at the ground for too long, and this is usually, it causes you to lose some sense of where you are at and where you're headed, Right? And so this is how we can feel in our Christian lives. But I have good news for you. Jesus came to preach the Sermon on the Mount for you. And he came to preach the Beatitudes for you and to you and us as a whole church so that he could help you along your way. He can steady your feet and shape your heart and pick your chin up to see his face and your ultimate destination, which is the kingdom of heaven. So today, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, and this is what we are watching Jesus do here. He is quite literally teaching us the kingdom of heaven, and he begins with its citizens, his followers, his disciples, Christians, and, and this is the main point of my sermon. Jesus is showing us in the Beatitudes who his followers are and the place that they have in his kingdom. So we will work through five points. The first one sets up the Beatitudes, and then the last four are the four Beatitudes that I'm preaching, um, that I've been tasked to preach with, and, and Pastor Jared will preach the second half next week. For us Christians, this is what I hope for us today. For us Christians, first, I hope that we truly will be challenged in growing in each of these beatitudes and the Spirit will mature our hearts in them. These aren't characteristics of super-Christians. If you're a Christian, you have each of these in some measure. But like our faith, we can grow in these for our sanctification and God's glory. The second thing is I hope you can take great joy 
and comfort in these beatitudes because of the gospel. Jesus enables you, Christian, to live these out, and, re- and the rewards that he shares are meant to help you endure with so much joy on your journey to heaven. If you're not a Christian, Jesus came to show you the heart he requires of his citizens in his kingdom. But as you examine your heart this morning, I hope that you'll see that the way of Christ is different than your way. And it may seem impossible for you to imagine having the characteristics laid out in the Beatitudes, but here's the good news. Turning to Jesus gives you such a heart. It's impossible for us to have these Beatitudes as Christians too, but Jesus changed our hearts because we trusted him, and and so I hope that you will too this morning. So now let me read Matthew 5, 1 through 6. Matthew 5, verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's now look at our first point. The kingdom of heaven's ruler is Jesus. This comes from verses 1 and 2. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. Matthew here is setting the stage of Jesus' sermon with these words, and so these words matter for understanding the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount as well. And in this foundation of verses 1 and 2, Matthew is mainly pointing to two things. One, Jesus' authority, and two, Jesus' message. So in verse 1, look down at verse 1. It says, Jesus saw the crowds, went up on the mountain, sat down, and his disciples came to him. Matthew wrote, Jesus went up on the mountain. But he wasn't concerned with us knowing Jesus geographically taught on a mountain. There's no more authority coming out of Jesus' mouth teaching in one place than another, right? So what's going on here? Matthew was making a point. And his point is this, Jesus is the new and better Moses. See, Matthew knew his audience because although we're reading this, the gospel of Matthew was first mainly written for the Jews of Matthew's day. And he understood that Jewish people knew their scriptures well and this connection would mean something to them. So then, why is he pointing to Moses? Well, Moses was one God's appointed leader of his people who ascended Mount Sinai to ultimately teach God's people his word. That's the second. The third thing is he used Moses to deliver his people from Egypt to the promised land. But Jesus is the new and better Moses because he isn't delivering lives from Egypt, but souls, every single soul who trusts in him from sin and death And he isn't just delivering people to another place on the map like the promised land in Israel. He's delivering our souls to the true and better promised land, heaven. 
And Jesus isn't giving instruction from the Lord for a certain time and certain people like Moses, but he's giving us perfect instruction for living in his kingdom in which he is the ruler. And this instruction is everlasting for all time and for every soul who trusts in him. So yeah, he's much better than Moses. And this introduces us to an important word. And Matthew's main point in this verse is that Jesus has authority. And it is ultimate. Earlier in in our worship, we read, um, Zach read Colossians 1, and Paul explaining Jesus' authority. It is because of this authority that Jesus can teach what comes next in the Beatitudes and, and the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There is literally no higher authority in this universe than Jesus. And so Matthew bookends the Sermon on the Mount with an indicator that Jesus' authority matters here. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you were to go to chapter 7, you'd see it says that he, um, uh, Matthew says that the people were amazed because of Jesus' authority. So you see he's, he's sandwiching the Sermon on the Mount between this idea that Jesus has authority. So if he does, and he's explaining his kingdom with all authority, that we should listen to this carefully. Now let's look at verse 2. Then he began to teach them. Jesus came to earth to live a sinless life. He atoned for our sins on the cross. He defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. But Jesus also came to this earth to teach something. So before we get to the Beatitudes themselves, we should ask the question, how does this Sermon on the Mount in general and then the Beatitudes specifically fall in line with Jesus' ultimate message? What is his message? If you could sum up Jesus' message in one sentence, what, what did Jesus teach? What would it be? Well, thankfully, providentially, Jesus actually does this for us. Turn your Bibles probably just one page back and look at Matthew 4, 17. This is what Jesus says. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew put this here because this is the start of Jesus' public ministry and the sum of all of his teaching. This is the message of Jesus. And this is the water that, that Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the water that all of it's swimming in. This is the frame, the structure connecting everything together. Jesus is saying that the most important reality that ever existed, which is his kingdom, which is heaven, in which he is the ruler, in which there are real citizens that really can enter his kingdom. This is the reality that Jesus offers us and how this kingdom works and who is in it is about to be laid bare for all of Jesus' listeners. To which Jesus urges only one action, repent. We think of this word repent But it doesn't just merely mean turning away from sin. We usually think, we usually get that part right. But the fact is, this is only half of what it means. This is a turning from sin, but it's a turning to Jesus. And this is displayed most clearly when Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke 
from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as we read the Beatitudes in just a moment, you need to see how each Beatitude is an active picture of repentance, turning away from sin and into the saving arms of Jesus Christ. So with that quick orientation to Jesus' message, the kingdom of heaven, now we can understand that what Jesus is doing is in teaching the Beatitudes is he's teaching us the kingdom of heaven. To put it another way, that the Beatitudes aren't being taught in a vacuum. They're being explained in the context of Christ's kingdom. And this changes the way that we read them. Lastly here, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he uses this already and not yet tension that we see when we talk about, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see it in the Beatitudes. So when he speaks of his kingdom, there are realities that are true now, but there are things that have not yet been realized, but are promised and secured for us for a later time. And that's, you see that tension, right? We see that some of this reality is here, but we don't see other parts. We get to experience some of the blessings and realities now while also getting to expectantly look forward to promises to come. And we'll see this in the Beatitudes today. So now with these in mind, we're now turning to the Beatitudes themselves. And how we're going to do this essentially is look at each Beatitude in two parts. Because each Beatitude has this kind of format. It says, blessed are the X for Y. You see that? So part one, the the first way we're going to examine the Beatitudes is looking at how Jesus describes the heart of a Christian. He's reminding us who we are and those of us who are followers of Christ. He's saying, this is is what my people look like. Jesus, uh, in the second part, is describing then our place in his kingdom. One word or phrase I thought of was the kingdom reality that is ours because of Christ. And so this is what he's encouraging us on. This is how he's encouraging us on as we strive to heaven. So now, let's now look at these Beatitudes. And our second point, the kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. Verse three, look down there. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This word blessed, by the way, is, uh, it actually is where the title Beatitude comes from. Just if you were curious, I was. I didn't actually know until this sermon. And so I looked it up. And the Beatitude, that word comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed, just in case if you were curious. Um, but this is the foundational Beatitude. And it makes sense that Jesus would teach this first because this is where the heart and the life of the Christian begins. And this is where the heart and the life of the Christian doesn't just begin, but it remains. And this is actually the case for all the Beatitudes. We don't graduate on from being poor in spirit or any of the Beatitudes. And that's a good thing. And this first Beatitude, it also shows its foundational nature because it answers the question, who can enter the kingdom? Being poor in spirit is when one's spirit one's heart, soul, or you could say self, falls under such deep conviction of sin and realizes that they have absolutely no hope of saving themselves 
and are completely impoverished spiritually and realize that they need saving. In other words, it's realizing not only the inability to save yourself, but your inability to do anything spiritually. And if there is a realization that someone outside of oneself is needed for saving and help, then the poor in spirit takes that poorness of spirit and runs to Jesus with it. That's the heart of repentance. The poor in spirit understands Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is a spiritual debt that comes from this, that he or she is helpless to repay. Think of Peter upon recognizing Jesus. He said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. Isaiah 6, the Lord calls Isaiah to him to be a prophet. And Isaiah's response is what? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord. In Luke 18, Jesus tells us a parable about a man who is not poor in spirit and one who is. One who looks to his works and praises himself and he prays and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not as bad as other people. The man has no idea that he actually is as bad as other people and he needs help. But the tax collector does recognize his spiritual poverty and he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The poor in spirit's neediness is always before them. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He doesn't say he was the worst. He says he is the worst. Being poor in spirit is a constant heart posture. It's not an acute moment. Think of the song, Come Ye Sinners, We Sing. If there is any song that embodies a beatitude, this might be it. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, or if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. There is this sense there of desperation, realizing that the heart needs saving and shaping by Jesus' grace no matter how we feel. As a church, there's a reason we have a time of confession every Sunday morning. There's a reason we don't shy away from preaching about sin and the need of Jesus in this pulpit. And it's because we are modeling and reminding one another that we are poor in spirit. And the posture of seeing our spiritual need of Jesus afresh and running after him like a beggar pleads for help. Now let's look at the second half of this beatitude in verse 3. We now look to the kingdom reality. And it says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is where we begin to bask in this crazy upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. And we look to the kingdom reality of those who are poor in spirit. This is where you can find great comfort, Christian. If you are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. That word is means now, in this moment. It's secured for you, and it cannot be taken away from you. In this kingdom that is now yours, you owe no spiritual debt. Your debt was paid, and it was paid in full by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And in this kingdom that's now yours, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit 
and God's grace that enables you to accomplish the spiritual things that you had no ability to do on your own. By the Holy Spirit, you can fight sin that no longer holds power over you. By the Holy Spirit, you can live with wisdom. By the Holy Spirit, you can forgive those who have hurt you most. You can endure the greatest trials because you are no longer a citizen of this world, but you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Paul in Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the kingdom is ours now, but it will be ours as an inheritance, and we wait for Jesus as we wait for Jesus, and we wait to see that inheritance realized. So here's, here's that already but not yet tension. You are bound for heaven And you will, by God's grace, see the kingdom of heaven in all of its beauty with your own eyes. Let's say that I have a grandparent that I know um, has something that I'd love to have passed down to me someday after they're gone. So let's just use a Bible. And I ask them if I can have it someday. And they respond, well, yes, it's yours. It's yours. But of course... It's going to remain in their house until the time comes, right? So in one sense, it's not actually mine. I can't touch it yet, read it. I can't put it on my shelf. But in another sense, it is mine. And it's mine because they said it was. And for all intents and purposes, it is truly mine. That's what our inheritance of the kingdom of heaven looks like. In one sense, it's already ours. But in another sense, it is coming. But it's a promise that you can take to the bank. So, if you are weary of your inability to accomplish anything spiritually on your own and are trusting in Jesus for your spiritual good, take great hope and peace in knowing you're exactly where the Lord wants you to be in the capable and caring arms of Christ, and you have the Spirit, and you have heaven waiting for you. Next, the kingdom of heaven is for those who mourn. Verse 4, look down at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Our gut reaction here is, at least mine is, blessed are those who mourn. I don't want a life full of sadness, right? I'd rather hang out in Philippians where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. How can this verse that rejoice in the Lord and this beatitude, how can those jive together? How can mourning be a blessing and a characteristic of a disciple of Jesus? This one's odd. It's because those who mourn see the fleeting nature of sin for what it truly is and look to better things in Christ in heaven. When Jesus teaches blessed are those who mourn, he's not saying it's good to be sad in some general sense, but it's good to be grieved about something in particular, and that is sin. We know this because other parts of Scripture attest to this. Listen to a few. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, For when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. James 4, 8 through 9. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. David, after he sinned deeply in God's sight in Psalm 51, 17 writes, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. So here we're seeing this pattern. And the thread we can see is that the citizens of Jesus' kingdom don't just mourn, but mourn sin. Those who mourn don't see sin as anything gratifying. They don't see it as profitable. They don't see it as an oasis in this life. It's not attractive. Those who mourn don't mourn because they got caught in sin or how it affects their physical lives. They mourn because they see that their sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And there is godly sorrow instead of worldly sorrow. But the world says something different, don't they? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the philosophy of the world is, forget your troubles. Turn your back on them. Do everything you can not to face them. Things are bad enough as they are without you going to look for troubles. Therefore, be as happy as you can. I'm going to take this quote and turn it a little bit. Because of Christ in the kingdom of heaven, face your troubles. Don't be afraid of them. Trust Christ with them, mourn, and watch him use those troubles for the Father's glory, for your sanctification, and be sober-minded. Because while the world is working hard to find the source of happiness, you found it in Christ alone. So now, here's that turn where we look to the reality of the kingdom of heaven that changes everything. Look down at verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You will be comforted by Christ. In the present, in that already sense, when you are mournful over your sin, your comfort comes by way of the gospel. Jesus died for your sin, and it is no longer being held against you. We still mourn our sin this side of heaven, Because remember, we don't graduate from these beatitudes and we're still capable of sinning. That's just the Christian life. But your mourning is met with comfort and joy because of the gospel, not misery. And you can mourn with joy because the sin you're mourning over is forgiven. So mourn, but then rejoice in Christ. And then there's the not yet reality for you, Christian. When you are not satisfied with the pleasures of this world, it's because you have your sights set on something better, and that's heaven. There, Christ is waiting to remove the presence of every sin and every sorrow from you forever. Think about Revelation 21, where Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more, Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Comfort is coming. And although we may not experience that full comfort just yet, 
we can experience the contentment and comfort of Christ even now, knowing that it's not far off. As Psalm 35 says, weeping may stay overnight, but joy, there is joy in the morning. We can endure sorrows because we've been been promised eternal joy. So if you are brokenhearted and heavy because of your sin or just sin and fallenness around you, you are right where Jesus wants you to be. You're right where he wants you to be. Continue to endure and rejoice because comfort in heaven will be yours. Fourth, the kingdom of heaven is for the humble. Verse five, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. I'm gonna have Martin Lloyd-Jones help me again explaining the progression of the Beatitudes in this way. He says, a man can, be, can never be meek unless he is poor in spirit. A man can never be meek unless he sees himself as a vile sinner. These other things must come first. But when I have that true view of myself in terms of poverty of spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I am led on to see that there must be an absence of pride. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in which Nothing in himself of which he can boast. So meekness or, or humility, I'll use both, is the opposite of pride. So the heart of the humble and the meek disciple is one that acts out of a desire to glorify not himself, but Christ in every way. To be meek is to be patient, content, slow to take offense, as our church covenant reads. The meek person does not retaliate or give in to sinful anger. His or her primary goal is, as as one pastor I read put it, not to assert himself, but to assert the cause of God or the cause of the weak. Because the meek is no longer concerned about their pride or their status, but only the glory of God. The meek person does not have to have the last word. And they don't need to win. Because because they trust their God will work all things for their good. And they know this trust is more stable than their greatest worldly efforts. Meekness is not weakness. It doesn't mean one must be passive or quiet. But that one has courage and boasts in the Lord. Lastly, the meek person has confidence in the Lord's will, even when they cannot see what he is doing. So when life gets shaky, or the future becomes unclear, maybe even scary, the meek one does not panic in sin, but he or she is steadfast, trusting the Lord with all his heart and not leaning on his own understanding. So, Here is the kingdom reality for us, church, to spurn us on towards meekness at the second half of verse 5. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Of all the Beatitudes, this second half of this one was the most confusing for me. Uh, It got me the least excited. I'm reading it. Inherit the earth. 
does that mean like the earth we're on now? Is it talking about the new heavens and new earth? Like what's going on here? This is what I found. That Jesus is alluding to another scripture, and that's Psalm 37. We're not going to read the whole thing now, but I'd encourage you to read it because it's, Psalm 37 is addressing meekness. And it's addressing meekness in contrast with wickedness. And this is what we see. I'll read uh, just Psalm 37, 11. It says, But the humble, or the meek, will inherit the land, or the earth, and will enjoy abundant prosperity. So to understand this, we need to think about the Old Testament for just a minute. When Israel inherited the promised land of Canaan with Joshua, what happened? They came in and the Lord gave his people the Canaanites' land and everything in it because they trusted in him and not in their own ability. And so Israel replaced the wicked people, you could say. So what was once the Canaanites became the Israelites as an inheritance because of their faithfulness. So in Psalm 37, and so in this beatitude, Jesus' promise Jesus' promise that we will inherit the earth means that he will champion our cause and he will inherit and, and we will inherit what we did not win, but Christ enables us to inherit it. And that inheritance is the kingdom of heaven for us. So if you are in a place where you feel weary, you just feel beat up from taking shots, and you have not sought to elevate yourself, but trust in Christ to have the last word. Jesus sees you, and he knows. He knows. And on that last day, all is going to be made plain. And in this beatitude here, he is saying that he is so pleased with you, and you're in the best place that you could be to bring him glory. Last the kingdom of heaven is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is verse 6. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I don't know how long you've ever gone without food or water, truly thirsted or hungered for something. Uh, the best example I can think of is I was in college, and we did a 48-hour fast out in the woods we had to like sleep on just the hard ground with, with nothing but just like a page of the Bible for 48 hours. It was miserable. <laughs> and it was like a spiritual formation weekend thing, and I would not recommend it. It was way too radical. But, but I remember thinking in that moment about nothing but food the entire time. Uh, I just, I almost gave up multiple times. That desire couldn't have been any stronger. I don't know if you can think of some example like that. Jesus is using hunger or thirst because it helps us relate to some of those strongest desires we have when we are hungry and we are thirsty. But here, Jesus is pointing to a deep longing desire for something much more precious than food, and that's righteousness. This desire for righteousness is a desire for God more than anything else. It's a longing to be free from sin and to be full of Christ. As one commentator put it, it's a longing for God's will to be done on earth and soon to be expected in heaven. 
Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness hold fast to Matthew 6.33 when Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. The deception of Satan is that he'd like to make you think that you can only provide for yourself all you need if you seek those things above Christ. Love, security, money, reputation. And yet Jesus takes this lie and he flips it on its head and he reveals the truth that only through his kingdom and his righteousness will you actually be satisfied and provided for. We sung, Lord, from sorrows deep I call this morning from Psalm 42. Really could have been for, you can think of, blessed are those who mourn or this beatitude with this song. But it's from Psalm 42, which calls us to go put our hope in the Lord despite our sorrows. Here's how the first line of the psalm opens. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When, I, when can I come and appear before God? So the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness sees their sorrow and longs for heaven. They can't wait to get there, and that's what matters most to them. They do not long for sin to mask the pain. They mourn, and then they put their hope in God. Which leads us to the second half of this verse, for they will be filled. Jesus is the only one who truly fills the heart. What we see in the world are people pursuing other things above God because they make this mistake in thinking that their body or their feelings are what need to be satisfied when what they are really seeking is to satisfy their heart. Longing for anything else aside from righteousness is like being thirsty in the ocean and drinking ocean water, salt water. It seems like it's going to satisfy, but it won't ever do it. In fact, it could kill you. But the only way one is filled, actually filled, is by drinking water not from the ocean of worldly things, but from the water of life in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words of Jesus from John 4. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. The water Jesus is talking about him here is Jesus himself. Because those who trust in him are clothed in his righteousness, and you can be satisfied only in this way. <clears throat> Jesus gives us himself, and the already kingdom reality is that our trust in Jesus gives us full life in the here and now. John 10.10, 10, I have come, Jesus is saying, that they may have life and have it in abundance. If you are a disciple of Christ, you have the fullness of Christ and the power of his grace through his spirit and his word to keep you fully satisfied this side of heaven. But then here is the not yet reality. And there is an ever greater, even greater satisfaction and fullness that we will experience in Christ that we have yet to see but is coming. One of my favorite verses of all time is Psalm 16, 11. You reveal the path of life to me. 
in your presence is abundant joy. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures. Don't settle or fall back into sin with the lesser things of this world, but strive toward the abundant joy and the eternal pleasures with Christ in heaven. As C.S. Lewis says, it's not our desires that are too strong. It's not our desires are too strong when it comes to being satisfied with this world, but they're too weak. Because the pleasures and the satisfaction, the fullness of heaven are just so much greater than that of this world because of Jesus. So friend, if you have a longing for the Lord and a longing for heaven, a desire for things of God, this is exactly where God wants you. Because it is only here that you will be reminded that Jesus is better now and there is something much better coming when we will be with Jesus in his kingdom of heaven, literally and bodily. So we've looked at these first four Beatitudes, and now I want to help us think through how to leave and apply what we've heard. So first, to my church family and other believers in this room, there's one sense in which we all need to grow in these Beatitudes like we do in our faith. We need to become more like Jesus in them. We have each of these in some measure, just like faith, But remember, Jesus isn't describing a super-Christian here. These are true of all Christians. But putting a hungering and thirsting for righteousness into action means that we are not satisfied alone with just staying put where we are. We can always grow because we are always trying to become like Christ, who is perfect. In fact, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes. Jesus was poor in spirit as he showed us perfect dependence upon his Father in heaven. He mourned the sin of this world perfectly and became the man of sorrows that Isaiah predicted him to be. He was perfectly meek on the cross as he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth for the cause of his glory and our salvation. And he perfectly hungered and thirsted for righteousness although he was perfectly righteous, as he desired his father and his father's will above all things. So where can you follow Jesus' words and repent? How do you need to pray for an increase in poor in spirit, a mournfulness of sin, meekness, a desire for God above all else? Examine your hearts. Look at what your life is producing, be it the fruits of the spirit or works of the flesh, And can you trace that back to your heart? How are your actions, your words, thoughts with your coworkers, your parents, with your spouse, children, with your church members, your pastors, behind closed doors, social media, how you spend your time? How do you trace these things back to your heart? The amazing thing is that, apart from Christ, we have no hope of conforming our hearts more to these beatitudes. But, praise be to God that in Christ, and because of the Holy Spirit, we can and will. Because he who started a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
So we should seek to grow, but Christians in this room, you also need to be refreshed in these beatitudes and look to the kingdom of heaven. Because of the gospel, Jesus made you a citizen of this eternal kingdom in which you will finally see each of these beatitudes perfected in your heart. And you will experience every promise of these beatitudes in full measure as a son and a daughter of the Father. And you will be with Jesus where your faith will be sight. Jesus has given us these reminders so that we can endure, we can see our troubles, our conflicts, and pains for the light momentary afflictions that they actually are. And we can strive towards heaven with joy. Lastly, if you are sitting in this room and you've listened to the scripture lay out the hearts of a Christian and you can't identify with these beatitudes, then it could be possible that you need to follow Jesus' words and repent and turn from your sin and trust in him. Because here's the great news that Jesus is preaching. Jesus himself made it possible for you to enter this kingdom too. You don't have to do a million steps to become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom like you would in a country of this world or something. There's only one simple step, and that's to place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Realize that you are poor in spirit and cannot save yourself. See the depths of your sin. Lay aside your pride Find satisfaction in Christ alone for your souls. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died on a cross for your sin. And he rose again three days later, defeating sin and death. And is in heaven right now waiting for you. He wants you in his kingdom and has given you his word today so that you would know how to enter it. Trust in him today. And to all of us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for helping us to think about your kingdom, examine our hearts, and strive towards heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for making us citizens of your kingdom by your gospel. Sanctify us. Make our hearts more like these beatitudes and more like you. Amen.